Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. End of Ecclesiastes. So if you're new, here's where we've been. Solomon has been poking us about life. And his conclusion is simple. Life is stupid. It's an enigma. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's ridiculous. And he says that because he's looking at life purely from an under the sun mentality, which means this, there's nothing after this life. When you die, it's done. There's not a God, there's not eternity, this is it. There's nothing that transcends the sun. So his conclusion, looking at life like that is stupid. So he's now punched himself out. He's done everything he can. He's talked about everything he wants to talk about. He gets now to the end and he says this. This is actually what I want to say the whole time, verse 13. Fear God, keep his commands. If you're thinking, why did he spend 11 and a half chapters wasting our time if that's what he wanted to say? Just get to your point, come on. Here's why. Ecclesiastes is like a math test. Remember math tests? You probably still have nightmares about them, okay? What did the teacher say? You couldn't just write the answer down. The teacher would say, you have to show your? Okay, that's what Ecclesiastes is. So for 11 and a half chapters, what Solomon is doing is saying, look it, if you take this mindset that there's nothing that transcends this life, then it's stupid and it's dumb and it's ridiculous. And he gives every possible scenario to show that And now finally, he's at the end and he says, here's what this makes you and me conclude. Real simple. Here's the conclusion that we're to fear God and to keep his commands, right? So before that, he gives us a little other hint that we're gonna look at real quick. And it's verses 11 and 12. And this is what I call those verses in my own outline. I call them personal development. Isn't that a buzz now? Like everybody's into some kind of personal development. So I just Googled it on Thursday. What are personal development trends? It's amazing to me. Education, what you eat, exercise. My goodness. Some people are like run marathons. Other people say the stupidest thing you could ever do is to run a marathon, right? You're like, oh, which one is it? I don't know. Do you need to sprint? No, you need to run a marathon. Like it's crazy. But this is the one that caught my eye. Coloring books are now personal development. Adult coloring books. So I had the privilege of going back and forth from here for about four years, from 2012 to 2016, uh, going to school in Portland. And I would see like these 
trends just kind of whip through. I remember the first time I went to a coffee shop, I went to get a coffee and I'm getting it. And there inside the coffee shop is this grown man and he's knitting a scarf, like just like furiously knitting the scarf. And like, he was just about done. It was like six feet long or something. He finishes, he puts it on, goes outside, gets on his scooter and takes off with it, like flapping the wind behind him. Like that's Portland right there. Next time, coffee shop, go in there, get my copy. There's a dude, maybe it was the same guy, I don't know. But he's got a coloring book out and he's got like a ton of these coloring, these, these coloring pencils, like from black all the way to right. It, it looked like a Pantene color thing from uh, Sherman, Sherman Williams or something. Like he's just diligently coloring. He left though, not on a scooter, he got an electric bicycle. No fossil fuels for him. He's stepping up his game, right? Like, it's crazy there. Have you heard of the Unipiper? Who's heard of the Unipiper in Portland? You gotta be kidding me. You gotta Google him. Not now, but later. So he's a guy that rides a unicycle, dresses like Darth Vader, plays bagpipes that shoot out flames, and he plays like uh, the theme to Star Wars or something, right? And he's normal in Portland. They're like, that doesn't even matter. That's why you haven't even heard of him. They're like, yeah, he's normal. You should see the really weird people, right? So. Portland was like awesome because it's all about like personal development, this, all these fads to make yourself better and better and better. Solomon says, I can one-up them. So if you wanna develop yourself, Solomon gives two things. Number one, verse 11, I just put it like this. No pain, no gain. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise. Anybody wanna be a wise person? The words of the wise are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? If you have a big giant 1500 pound steer and you're trying to get that steer to go the direction that you want that steer to go, you use this thing, it looks like a spear with a hook on it and you just poke that steer. You put it in pain to get it to go the direction that you want it to go. That's a goad. So what does Solomon say about wise words? They're gonna poke you. They're gonna prod you. If you're not being poked and you're not being pried and you're not being kind of in pain in a way, I don't know if it's wisdom. Solomon says this again in Proverbs 27, verse four. He says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That a really good friend that loves you and wants you to grow in wisdom, sometimes they're gonna poke you and wound you. In fact, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. He had written to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, which was a painful letter. And then reflecting on that, he says this, I told you hard things and it's the proof that I love you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4. These other people are telling you, oh, it's all good, it's all good. I told you hard things because what matters to me is not how you feel about me liking me. What matters is how you're doing. And that was more important to me. So I was willing to tell you difficult things because I love you. I think I can prove that. It didn't work out in first service. I'll try this one. So let's imagine that you meet someone in this service and you're out back eating a cracker or whatever, eating something, and you realize that the person's zipper is down. Who here would tell that person, bro, your zipper's down, raise your hand. Man, you guys are the same way. You guys are awesome. 
You ruined my illustration. Goodness. So the illustration was supposed to be no one raises their hand. And then I say, okay, if it's your spouse, do you tell them? Who would tell your spouse? All of us better tell our spouse, right? My goodness. Why? Because you're closer, because you love them. It causes you might say things that are maybe more difficult, more poking. It demonstrates that you love them, right? So fundamentally, as Christians, we should be good with this, right? Like to me, this is the fundamentals of Christianity. We know this, that that the first thing about Christians is we're not okay, right? You don't need a savior if you're okay. You need a savior because you're dying, drowning, broken, lost, destroyed. So the fundamentals about Christianity is not, hey, I'm okay, you're okay. The fundamentals about Christianity is this. It's okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. Let wisdom goad you, push you, help you, transform you. Like this is fundamentals of us. So we come together and we listen to God's word and put ourselves in submission to it. And we listen to people that are wise around us as they poke us sometimes and prod us because we know, hey, we're broken, but we, wanna, we don't wanna stay that way. I'm gonna grow. And I say this, that if you have a God that always agrees with you, never pokes you, it's probably not God, right? If God always agrees with me, it's probably me. That God will, Hebrews chapter 12, goad me at times, push me to grow me and to make me into something. And I need it. Like I went back to school um, when I was 40. And at that time I had been preaching for eight years and you guys are really nice. So it's always like, man, that was a great message. Ah, thank you. Oh, that was awesome. Right? So I'm used to that for eight years hearing that. Well, about a hundred times a year, I preach Sundays and Wednesdays. So all the time. I go up to school, my second class, it's a hermeneutics class. The professor literally said this to me, dude, that's tired. You gotta get better than that. I was like, ow. And at first I just wanna say, no, you're tired, man. You're a professor because you can't be a pastor. That's what you're doing. But I had to listen and be like, wow. Man, that was the best thing someone ever said to me because it poked me in a good, healthy, biblical way. We need it. No pain, no gain, embrace words that sometimes you might wanna defend yourself again instead, instead say, no, if it's gonna be wisdom, it'll poke me, it'll poke me. And I bet if you think through your life, the great things that you've learned or earned came with some pain because that's the way it works. No pain, no gain. Number two, verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. This is referring to the one shepherd We'll touch on that on Wednesday. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there's no end. Just go on Amazon. Like I have a wish list that grows every day. There's no way I could read my wish list right now in my lifetime. And I'll have more books. So totally. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Anyone on spring break right now? Now you felt that. You're like, ah, I need this. So here's what he's saying. Summing up, And we'll we'll jump through Ecclesiastes. Here's what he's saying. Life can't be written. It has to be lived. That there are some things in life that you will never be able to find or discover in a book. And I love learning. 
I'm a learner. I love it. But you know what? There's a lot of things that you can never learn in a book. You just have to live them. Can you understand what it means to fall in love from reading a book? No way. Can you understand what friendship is from reading a book? No way. What connection is from reading a book? No. Can someone explain to you the taste of honey in a book? No, you gotta taste it. Can someone explain to you the absolute best flavor in the world of dark chocolate in a book? No way. Can you take a correspondence course on swimming? Can you be like, I got my degree, dude, I'm going swimming. Good luck with that, okay, right? Can you learn how to drive a car or a motorcycle from a book? No. So what Solomon is saying, and it's really going back a long time in this book, is life has to be lived. You have to live it. So look at all these. I'm gonna just run through the theme that you have in Ecclesiastes of living life. Go back to chapter two, verse 24. There is nothing better. That's putting it pretty high. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Chapter three, verse 13. Back up to 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his work. This is God's gift to man. Chapter five, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him for this is his lot. Chapter eight, verse 15. I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. Chapter nine, verse seven. Go. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun. Do you see a theme? Live life, live life. It might be an enigma. You might not be able to figure out a lot of things. Live life. That too much of life is spent either regretting past stuff we've done or worrying about the future that we can't control. That's Ecclesiastes. And so Solomon over and over says, here's the key. Just live life right now. Just live life right now. Go have a meal with good friends. Laugh, cry, talk, tell great stories, do that, live life, enjoy it. And I think one of the keys that helps you and me, and Solomon says it over and over is this, he keeps saying it's a gift from God, it's a gift from God, it's a gift from God, it's a gift from God. One of the keys to actually enjoying life is gratefulness. 
Like I think a discipline for believers should be every Monday morning, you spend 10 minutes writing a thank you letter to God. Jesus, thanks for the life you've given me. Thanks for the health that I have. Thanks for the roof over my head. Thank you for food in my belly. Thank you for the kids that I have. Whatever it is, you start making your list for 10 minutes because here's what science has proven today. Ungrateful people are unhappy people. Grateful people are happy people. We sometimes wanna mix it up. Like the reason I'm unhappy is because I don't have some stuff or whatever it is. No way. It is literally, if you make the mindset of being a thankful, grateful people, something switches in your brain where you are happy. It's proven. I have this book I'm reading right now. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis. One of those amazing books I've read. It's so incredible. It says that. Like there are things, you just, I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to enjoy the life God has given me today. I'm going to simply enjoy a good meal with friends and laugh until something that's not air comes out of my nose. That's what I'm going to do, (laughs) right? Life has to be lived. That's your personal development. No pain, no gain and enjoy your life. Quit worrying about your personal development, all this stuff that keeps you from just living in the present right now, right? Don't regret your past. Don't worry about the future and control it. Have a great meal with friends, right? Now he gets to his payoff. And it's two things. Fear God, keep his commands. What does it mean to fear God? Like we all have fears, right? You guys afraid of anything? You're afraid of public speaking? Would you like to have my job? Because I'll give it to you right now. Here you go. If you'd have told me 20 years ago, I'd be doing this, speaking four times a week to a couple thousand people, I would have rebuked you as Satan. Get thee behind me. There's no way, right? I didn't want to, like, this was a fear of mine. We have fears. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear that your kids might grow up and maybe deny Jesus or go off and do drugs and be addicted. Like there's all kinds of things that we're afraid of. Is that the idea? Is it that kind of thing like with God, that kind of fear we're supposed to have with God? Like we're always a little tentative, always like, I hope he doesn't crush me today. Is that what fear of God means? No. So it'd be a whole Sunday to do this. But if you read the Bible carefully, what you find is fear of God is understanding God's place in the universe and our place in the universe. That's really what it is. It's an awe, it's a reverence, it's a comprehension of there is a God and I'm not him. It's really that simple. And when you do that, you start to take into account his nature and the kind of being that we serve as well. And you become really enamored with him. That's what fear of God is supposed to be. And what that does is this. There's, there's a, and I agree with them, there's a way of thinking about fear that makes your fears a Siamese twin of what your God is, little g, right? So if I fear financial problems and it just overwhelms me, most likely it's connected to my little g God of money. If I fear rejection and I'm always working on people, you know, trying to make them like me, then I probably have a, a little God of acceptance, Okay? If I fear my family might go south and it just consumes me all the time, then probably my God is my family, right? So very often, the fears that overwhelm us are actually connected 
to the gods that we worship, the things that are most important to us, that our fears always shoot shotgun and drive us into things that we shouldn't be doing. I sat and I counseled a young lady a while back who was sleeping with her boyfriend. I said, why? You know better than this. Her answer was this. I was afraid if I didn't, he would leave me. So I said, what you've done there then, you've done this. You have now made your boyfriend your God. And he's causing you to do things that you would not normally do. So here's what Solomon is saying, it's brilliant. If God is in his right place in your life, your awe, your understanding of him, then guess what it does? All the other fears that you have are put in their right place. They're put in perspective, right? I'll give you an illustration of this. So in Luke chapter eight, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, let's get in this boat and let's go across the lake. He didn't say, hey, let's get in this boat and let's go down under the lake. Let's go across the lake. Disciples get in, they start off. Jesus, very tired, falls asleep. Big storm hits, they're afraid. They wake up Jesus in the middle of this storm. They say, master, do you not care that we perish? So interesting, their fear led them to two things. God doesn't care for me and I'm doomed. You ever have fear like that? So that's the fear that they have. What does Jesus do in response to his disciples? Does he slap them? Come on, snap out of it. Like you or I might do. Does he say, come on, there's only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. No, you know what he says to him? And it's so interesting. He says, where's your faith? Not, you don't have any faith, let me give you some. He says, where is it? It's misplaced right now. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, where's your faith in me? I told you, we were gonna get in this boat and we're gonna go across the lake. Where's your faith? You've misplaced it. And because you've misplaced your faith, now you're afraid of circumstances. Don't you know I'm the one that raised the dead? I took a kid's Lunchable and I fed, fed 5,000 people. Come on, right? I've kept my promises to you. Where is your faith? Fear of God is putting your faith in him. That like Paul would say, hey, he will supply all my needs, not all my wants, all my needs according to his riches and glory. Why am I gonna fear finances? He loves my kids more than I love my kids. He wants them to do well more than I want my kids to do well. Why am I afraid of that? I need to do my job, no doubt, but why am I afraid of that? So you're supposed to constantly be saying, I need to put my faith back into God because when I do, what happens is it puts everything else in the right perspective. He is the gravity then of my life and I'm not out spiraling out of control somewhere. It keeps me where I'm supposed to be. That is the fear of God. I love it. Like I would like for us to recapture this saying that was very popular a hundred years ago where people were called, hey, he is a God-fearing man or she is a God-fearing woman. You know what that meant a hundred years ago? It meant that person is so solid in what they know about Jesus, what they know about God, that you're not gonna get them to compromise. You won't get them to follow your junk or their garbage or go anywhere with you because they know who they serve and they're solid, they won't compromise. I pray at the end of my life that it's said of Matt Heverly, He's a God-fearing man. That he didn't compromise. He didn't get drugged into stuff he didn't want to do because he had primarily 
and awe, fear of God, and it kept him centered. Like sometimes it's very good in counseling. I'll just ask these questions about people that are full of anxiety. Just like, okay, let's start trying to dig down and see what your fear is. Whose rejection would crush you? Who would you sin for? Right? We call that peer pressure. Because a lot of times those kind of questions reveal to me that Siamese twin of what my real God is. And it's time to come back and say, where's your faith? Don't put it in those people. Don't put it in those circumstances. Don't put it in that bank account. Put it in the one who will never disappoint you. That's fear of God. And then secondly, keep his commands. Now, what does that mean to keep God's commands? We are this side of Calvary. We're this side of grace. We're this side of Jesus. We're this side of the cross. So as a New Testament believer, what does it mean to keep God's commandments? Are we supposed to keep all the Old Testament commands? So a number of years ago, I think I figured it was about eight years ago, uh, I went up to Winston, went to Wildlife Safari, got done with it. We're leaving and there's that building, if you've been there, it has all the animals painted on the side of it. Have you seen that? It's like Noah's Ark or something. So I'm like, what is that? So we pulled in there, we got out, it was closed. We're like looking in the window at it. When this lady opens the door, she's like, I'm closed, but you guys can come in. Oh, cool. So we go in there and we're walking around and just kind of checking out things. Uh, my swarm of locusts were in there. So they're just kind of doing their thing too. I'm like, don't break off, come on. All right, so this lady, she's like, hey, um, we built a replica of the tabernacle. Do you wanna see that? You guys know what the tabernacle is? Okay, it's a tent where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. No? Okay, it's in the Bible. They made something in the Bible, all right? So they made this thing in the Bible, all right? So uh, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to see that. So I go back there and there it is. And I'm like, oh, wow. So are you a believer in Jesus? She's like, yes, I am. I said, oh, that's so cool. You're in Winston here. What, what church do you go to? She's like, we, I don't know why she should we, we go to the commandment keeper church. I said, oh, commandment keeper church. I said, what does that mean? What, what, what do you, what, tell me about that. She goes, we keep all the commandments of the Bible. Ah, like what? She goes, well, the food that we eat. We don't eat crab. We don't eat shrimp. We don't eat our steak medium rare. We don't eat bats. That's a tough one to keep there. Mm-hmm. Right? We dress the way the Bible tells us to dress, you know, head coverings and, and, and certain, you know, blue colors in our clothing. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, great. And what else? We keep the Sabbath day. We keep it holy. I'm like, interesting, awesome. Then she looked at me, she goes, what about you? I said, well, I'm a pastor in Grant's Pass of a church of commandment breakers. That's what I am. <laughs> so... <laughs> She's like, we're closed now, get out. <laughs> she didn't actually. <gasps> Who's right? Right, is, it, is she right? We are commandment keepers. Or am I right? We're commandment breakers. Sounds like she's right. right. Are we as believers supposed to go back to the Old Testament and see the 613 rules and regulations and say, we need to keep these. We need to do these things. Or, or instead of the 613, maybe just the 10 commandments. Should, should we keep the 10 commandments? Right? Because if you keep the 10 commandments, it's interesting which ones are left out. The great Shema, 
Deuteronomy 6, 4. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And, and the other one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Like those aren't in the 10 commandments. So what is it? What do we do? Well, here's the great thing about the Bible. On big controversial things, Jesus addresses them. So Jesus is asked this question in Matthew 22. What's the greatest? It's a lawyer trying to test him actually, like trying to trap him. What's the greatest commandment? So Jesus responds, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your strength. And he adds one. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this very important phrase. On these two hang all the law and all the prophets. What Jesus is saying there is this. Listen, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing it. You're keeping the law. You're doing it all right there. That's what Jesus says, okay? And there's a way that you can keep the 613 commands of the Old Testament and have no love for God. That you're just keeping those commands because you're trying to rub the God genie, right? So he'll give you your wish, right? You're trying to do God stuff so you can get your hands on his trust fund. That's not loving. There's a way that you can do the commandments where you're not actually loving your neighbor as yourself. You're trying to get ahead that you got all these excuses why you don't have to. Sabotaging. So Jesus makes it simple. Love God, love people. On these two, hang all the Old Testament law. So what does it mean to love then? Like, what is love? I had this illustration given to me by a professor in college. And I thought it was really good. He said, there are two ways, two word pictures about how you can learn what love is and what love is not. First, what love is not. You guys know what a black hole is? Right, it's out there somewhere. They're called event horizons where they're so dense, they suck everything into them. Even light can't get by them. It sucks light in. And when something goes into a black hole, here's what happens in the black hole. It actually deconstructs it, takes the molecules apart, takes the atoms apart, takes the electrons into quarks. It disintegrates, it decreates. That's what black holes do. They suck everything into them and they leave a path of decreation. That's what love isn't. Love isn't a lifestyle where we are trying to say, everyone needs to serve me. Everybody needs to make much of me. Everybody needs to respect me. Everybody needs to give to me. Because when you live that kind of life, we become a black hole and we actually destroy things. We take apart life. We're destructive. And we end up very angry and touchy and annoyed and annoying. That's a black hole. That's what love isn't. So what is love? The other illustration he gave was this, of a cell. Like every living thing is made up of cells. Plants, right? Animals, beavers are made up of cells. You and me were made up of cells. Everything's made up of cells. And what does a cell do? A cell is constantly trying to push out from itself a brand new cell, right? That's what cells do. They're always dividing, multiplying. So they take all of the stuff that they have and they say, I want to create new life. I want to create more life. I want to push out of me new stuff. That's what love is. Love is saying, I want to create new life. 
It's why Jesus gives us the best example, best definition of love, and it's in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he became a black hole and sucked everything into himself. Took, no, gave himself, gave his life so that you and I might have life. That's the definition of love. It's the opposite. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patience. You know what patient is? Patient is taking the most precious commodity that you have called time. You ever done the death clock on the internet? You just put in your age, your date, your height, your weight, if you smoke, if you don't, and then it just gives you how many seconds are left in your life. Have you seen that? It's so awesome. I did it for a while and I just turned it off because it was so depressing, right? It's saying you're taking that precious commodity and then you're actually giving it for the life of somebody else. I will be patient with you. I'll give you my most precious thing that I have, a finite substance, I'll give it to you. You wanna learn patience, have kids, right? Kids do not work on your time clock. They don't. Go to bed, please, no, okay. Goodness, right? So patience is just pushing out time for others. Kindness is what? Being hospitable, creating an environment of life for someone else to enjoy, right? Endures all things, bears all things, hopes all things. It says this, even if you're a black hole, I still believe there's an Imago day in you and I will endure it and I'll bear it and I'll hope for that to come to pass. That's what it is. It's creating life. I can go all through those. Like that's life. So what are we? Are we black holes or are we bacteria? I don't like the choices, Matt. <laughs> I tell people this, I say, I'm actually black mold. Kind of in the middle of those two, I'm still replicating. I'm just not sure what I'm replicating right now. I'm creating new life, but I don't know if it's the kind of life you want. <laughs> what are we, right? Here's the good news. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when Jesus came and went to the cross, he crushed the gravity of black holes and set you and me free that we could be a new kind of human that no longer sucks everything into ourselves and destroys. We could be a new kind of human like him that makes new life. So how's that happen? It's John chapter 15. Jesus says this, the father has loved me. I have loved you. Now go love other people. That we come into this, if you would, this flow, this new life source of love. And that love empowers us then to be people that no longer just black holes consume, consume, consume. We start to be concerned with, am I creating life or death? Am I creating darkness or light? What am I doing? Jesus, help me, right? Because if you look over 1 Corinthians 13, and you just ask yourself, like, who's always kind? Anyone here is always kind? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it holding up your hand, right? Anyone always hopeful, always enduring? Like you just look at that list, you're like, oh, never, never. I'm black mold too then. So what's our hope? The hope is this, as we follow Jesus, the Bible says this, we get transformed into his same image. And every single one of those characteristics, Jesus did perfectly. So as we follow him, as we 
come to him, as we confess to him, as we keep fear of God as our center, not letting anything else take us away from that fear, as we keep doing that, what happens is you and I are transformed into life creators. People that are around us, life flourishes. They do better. It's why we come to the table every Sunday. What we're really asking is we're saying, Jesus, help me to get in that flow of love. With your broken body and your spent blood, help me to get into that flow of love and stop destroying and making things worse around me where I start making life and more life. That's what we pray. And we keep asking that. And every Sunday we're saying, I just wanna take one more step forward in that. I wanna take one more you know, the, the, the pottery on the, the wheel, just press me more into your image. So we take and we eat and we say, send us back out of here where we can be your life and your light and your love to the community I'm with, as hard as they may be, black holes and all. Because when you do, you find life and it abundantly. Just life begets life then. So Jesus, this day, as we partake Help us to be a people that understand wisdom will poke us, but it can be the best thing for us. Help us to be those that embrace the goading of your wisdom. Help us to live life right now today, not worrying about the regrets of the past because you've forgiven us of those. Not so concerned about the future because you've said, let not your heart be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. It's out of this world. Help us to be present. Help us to fear you and no one else. Help us to have you as our center, our gravity, your greatness, your character, your nature. Help us to be putting our faith in you and no one else. And help us to be lovers, to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength and to love neighbor as ourselves. We need you. We need nourishment to do that. We need your body, your blood to feed us this day so we could be sent into hard marriages, hard homes, hard workplaces, hard neighbors, difficult cities, bringing your light and your life and your love. So fill us and send us out. We ask this in your name, amen.